I first began studying the Greek language in 1971, which is a whopping 46 years ago. So I've been looking at the Greek New Testament for the past 46 years. And like most students of a foreign language, you make flashcards with vocabulary. In my case, I would write the word in Greek with like a magic marker. And then because I was just learning the language, I would take a pencil and take the Greek letters and assign a English letter to each letter. We call that a transliteration. So what I could actually do is look at the penciled English letters, and that would remind me about the actual pronunciation of the Greek word. Those are, you know, flashcards, and virtually everyone who uh, teaches and needs to study foreign language uses them. Now, one of the most common words in the Greek language is just four letters long, M-E-N-O. It's the word meno, M-E-N-O, meno. It occurs a bajillion times, and it simply means I stay, I remain, I abide, or I dwell. Those are the ways it's translated in our English Bibles. So the one Greek word meno, that's a verb, means I stay, I remain, I abide, and I dwell. Well, I was dating a girl at this specific and particular time, and in my opinion, the date was not going well. So I told her that I was going to take her home. Well, she must have seen my pile of flashcards on the coffee table, and she saw these four Greek letters, but then she saw in English letters, M-E-N-O. And believe it or not, my date, and I wanted to take her home because it wasn't going very well, she looked at me and said, Greg, meno, which means, Greg, I stay, I remain, I abide, I dwell. Well, I was the prophet because she later dumped me, and believe it or not, she married a doctor. But meno is a beautiful, beautiful Greek word. It means I stay, I remain, I abide, and I dwell. And that concept of abiding and dwelling occurs frequently in the opening paragraph of John chapter 15, where we are told that we are to abide in Christ. We are to abide in Christ. In fact, it's listed about 11 times, 11 times just in that first paragraph. So it's something that is extremely important. It's so important that our Savior said, for you to understand what abiding in me is like, let's go to a vineyard, a grape vineyard, and I can show you exactly what I'm talking about. In all actuality, the upper room discourse was in the upper room for about half its time. And then the apostles sang a hymn and they departed to the Mount of Olives. And as they went their way through the Mount of Olives, Uh, Jesus saw a grape cluster, a grapevine, and just immediately went from the known to the unknown. Here's a grapevine. You people are always aware of that. Now, let me teach you some spiritual truth in reference to the grapevine. Then when he eventually got to the Mount of Olives, he prayed, you know, that prayer with great blood coming from his brow. So the upper room discourse wasn't always in the upper room. About half of it was, but not to split hairs The point I want to make is that Jesus used a literal vine 
in the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives to illustrate a very important spiritual truth, that is, to abide in Christ. Now, sometimes you'll hear the expression used as an adjective, are you a fruit-bearing Christian? So Christian is the noun, fruit-bearing is the adjective that further describes the noun. So what kind of Christian are you? Well, I'm a fruit-bearing Christian. That's very good. But sometimes it's used as a verb and a direct object. That is, do you bear, that's the verb, fruit, that is the direct object. So uh, fruit-bearing Christians bear fruit, used as an adjective and used as the object of a transitive verb. None of that which you need to know other than if I say fruit-bearing or bearing fruit, I'm saying the same thing, just using different uh, parts of speech. But as you look at John chapter 15, as we will in a few minutes, we must abide first before we bear fruit. That is so unbelievably important. I'm going to say it again. You must abide in Christ first, and then and only then will you be able to bear fruit. It is so very important. And in our study, in, as we look at the uproom discourse, Today we're going to be looking at two things like we look at two things in in this concluding series that I'm doing. The first, of course, is abiding in Christ, that concept of meno, which tells us our spiritual relationship. And then secondly, we'll be fruit-bearing for Christ, that is our spiritual responsibility. So we abide in Christ and we bear fruit for Christ. The first, abiding in Christ, that's our spiritual relationship. The second, bearing fruit, that's our spiritual responsibility. And we have responsibilities to bear spiritual fruit. And it is very, very important. So what I'd like to do today is, first of all, go through abiding in Christ, our spiritual relationship, followed, secondly, by bearing fruit for Christ, our spiritual responsibilities. And then the the old professor that's in me, we're going to have a 16-question quiz as we end today, but all answers are between your ears. They're in your mind and in your heart, and you'll not have to share your answers with anybody else. But we will indeed go through a little quiz to see how well we are doing in reference to fruit-bearing. So let's start, of course, with our first of two major movements, abiding in Christ, our spiritual relationship. And first of all, I want to start with the definition of the word abide. And this word in alphabetical order is used to translate, I abide, I continue, I dwell, I remain, I stay, and I tarry. Those are the six English translations for this one Greek verb, meno. But what I want you to focus on, we are to abide in Christ. We are to continue with Christ. We are to dwell in Christ. We are to remain in Christ. We are to stay in Christ. And then the old King James word, we are to tarry in Christ. And that, my friend, is extremely powerful, extremely powerful. Let me just read select verses out of John chapter 15. Verse number four uses the word three times. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 7 uses it twice. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. 
Verse 9, it's used three times. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I keep my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So there's a lot of abiding, continuing, remaining, dwelling, staring, or staying, and of course, carrying. So that's the definition and the expansion of that definition that you need to know. So that's the first part, definition. Now, secondly, expanding not so much the word, but the theological thought. The theological thought is here. If you are abiding in Christ, there is a union that will be expressed in communion. That is, there is a union, you are abiding in Christ, there will be a special kind of communion, and that communion is bearing fruit, bearing fruit. You abide shows the union. The fruit-bearing shows the communion, but the abiding has to come before the fruit-bearing. Now, this concept of abiding in Christ, Paul says, this is so remarkable that I'm going to develop this whole concept of being in Christ because I learned it initially in John chapter 15 in the upper room. So to abide in Christ, Paul took that concept and spun it, but then he gave us this in Christ, in the Lord, in him, and he was basically drunk with that kind of theological concept about the wealth that we have in the Savior, not in the world, not in ourselves, but in him, in Christ, in the Lord. And it's a beautiful, beautiful concept. He'll say in John chapter 15, you are in me. That is, you are in Christ. Paul goes, ooh, ooh, R54, where are you? Ooh, ooh. I'll, I'll run with that. I'll run with that. So when Jesus said, you are in me, Paul says, that's exactly right. Let me develop that over uh, many, many epistles. Now, as I shared initially, Jesus and the apostles sang a hymn, Psalms 13, 113 through 118. They went to the Mount of Olives, uh, and that's where Jesus prayed. But, but in the interim, there was looking at this vineyard. Now, this vineyard to every Jew would remind him of the Jewish nation. For example, here in America, if you see the Statue of Liberty, like, that's America. If you see the Liberty Bell, that's America. If you see a flag, that's America. Now, in Judaism, in Judaism, the grapevine was a symbol for the nation of Israel. A menorah and a candlestick was also a symbol of the nation of Israel. But I'm focusing on here the vineyard, the grapes. That cluster, that vine, that branch was a symbol for Israel. And it goes back to Isaiah chapter 5. And let's see how God looked at the nation of Israel as a vineyard. And then by analogy, how is God going to look at you and look at me because we are part of his vineyard, we are part of his vine, we are in him. These words are just so beautiful. I'm going to read them out of Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug all around and removed stones. He planted it with choicest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a vat for wine, and he expected the produce of good grapes. It produced only worthless ones. 
Then it goes on to say, what more was there to do for my vineyard than I've not already done? What, when I expected to produce sour grapes, it produced worthless ones. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled underground. I will lay it waste and it will not be pruned nor hoed. But briars and thorns will come up and I will also charge the clouds not to rain on it anymore. So that passage from Isaiah chapter 5, the Jewish people, the 11 apostles with Jesus, knew for certain. And they said, ay, ay, ay. If the nation of Israel was a vine that started well but ended poorly, then now you're going to call us branches and grapes in your vine. I hope we don't fail you like Israel did as a nation. And Jesus said, don't worry, don't worry. Because if you abide in me correctly and understand some of the things we've shared in the upper room, then you'll have more than enough raw material to be successful in your Christian life. So we've looked at definition, we've looked at expansion, we've looked at illustration. Now, secondly and lastly, secondly and lastly, we'd like to move to bearing fruit for Christ, our spiritual responsibility. Abiding in Christ, that's our spiritual relationship. But bearing fruit for Christ, that's our spiritual responsibility. So what I'd like to do is, again, just do a little bit of exposition and then a lot of description in reference to fruit bearing. But by way of exposition, I'd just like to take you through the first six verses of the Gospel of John at chapter 15. The first six verses, but I'm going to do it culturally, culturally. In other words, I'm going to tell you what the culture was like rather than discussing the deep theology or the problem passage of eternal security. I want to look at it culturally and in the science and law of hermeneutics. We study the Bible literally, historically, culturally, contextually, grammatically. But the cultural idea is very, very important. So before I begin verse number 1 of John chapter 15, I have to tell you culturally certain things about vineyards. Number 1, for example, it takes a whole lot of skill. That is, it takes great skill to grow grapes well. Every movie star in Hollywood wants to have some acres in Napa Valley so they can produce their own wine and put their name on the label. I mean, every movie star wants to do that. But it's not as easy as it sounds. If you are to be a good horticulturalist in the vineyard field, then you really have a great amount of skill. Secondly, it demands a lot of attention. It's like a newborn baby with colic and an earache that doesn't know day from night, night from day. And let's throw in an upset stomach to boot. Demands an awful lot of attention, and that's what grapes do. Thirdly, the vine grows like crazy. It grows like crazy. You better have pruners in your hand because you're going to be pruning till your wrist hurts. Uh, Fourthly, the vines were set about a dozen feet apart, but rather than having the limbs lie on the ground, they would get Y-shaped branches from other trees and stick them in like like a slingshot to actually suspend or to lift up or to pick up 
the branch so it would not lie on the ground and have mold and fungus and vermin attack the grapes and the branches. So there was some cropping up to do quite significantly. Then the next thing about a vineyard, which is very important, it's only good for one thing, producing grapes. You can't say, let's go under the shade of a vineyard. No, there's no shade in a vineyard. Or I'm putting an addition onto my house. A vineyard will provide many two-by-fours for me. No, it won't. In other words, if it doesn't produce grapes, it's worth, it is literally worthless. You can't do anything with it other than producing grapes. But the grapes have to be good grapes, not bad grapes. Plus, plus you might be deceived because the grape flower is so beautiful, but we're not focusing on flowers through the eye gate. We're focusing on grapes through the mouth and stomach gate. In other words, you don't have a vineyard because it has pretty flowers for a season. You have a vineyard for the grapes, not the flowers. You want the fruit, not the bells and whistles. And in the land of Israel, with all the Sharako wind that blows from the Arabian desert and dumps trillions and trillions of grains of desert sand on Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, sometimes those vineyards literally need to be washed with water, washed with water, so photosynthesis, so pollination can occur without a crusty layer of dust and gunk. So with that in mind, with that in mind, I'd like to take you ever so briefly through the first half dozen verses of John chapter 15. Again, I'm going to be focusing on culture, but I'm also going to insert and inject the three kinds of Christians that we find at John chapter 15 in the first half dozen verses. So as we begin at John chapter 15 at verse number 1, it says, I am the true vine, that's Jesus Christ is speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So we have one of the famous I am statements of Jesus, I am the true vine. And then to add glory and honor, he says, we have the best vine dresser in the world. And his name is my father. So the vine is perfect. And the vineyard master, the vine dresser, is perfect. Both are deity. So we're starting out well. We're starting out well. Verse number two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Not the best translation. It's the Greek word iro, which means I lift up, pick up. I lift up and I pick up. That's the Greek verb iro, and that's the word used here. So every branch that does not bear fruit is propped up on that, on that Y-shaped branch to get it off the ground where vermin and mold and fungus and mildew won't wreck the grape cluster. But this, this, this branch that does not bear fruit easily could be likened to a new convert. See, a new convert can be spiritually healthy, but cannot be mature. My granddaughter, Josie, is very, very healthy, but she's extremely immature. She pees and poops her pants, but she's healthy. 
So here at verse number two, we might have a new convert. He's, he's so new in Christ as a grape, he, he doesn't know too much, and that's okay. And God will prop him up. The Father will prop him up so that he might have a, a better fruit rather than a fancy flower. You want something to eat and drink, not something to look at. On the middle of verse number two, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it might bear more fruit. And this, dear friend, probably is the normal average Christian who has to get pruned every now and then for the spiritual good of you as a Christian. The the pastor that I was saved under said this, Christians are sheep. Sheep need to be shorn, that is, have the wool cut off. But you can't, you only can do that on occasion. You can't do that every day. You can't do that every week. It's, it's seasonal. And every now and then, we need our branches lifted up and supported. We need the wool that is on us to be shorn and, and cut off us. So at verse number two, right in the middle and to its end, basically says, here's, here's the normal average Christian. Uh, he bears fruit, but God says, I think there's more potential in him. He'll bear more fruit. And a careful reading, and this is important, a careful reading of John chapter 15, there are four levels of fruit. There's no fruit, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. No fruit, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. So we're going to be going through some of these concepts as the word of God is presented to us. So at verse number one, is, or verse number two, as it begins, possibly the new convert. The middle of verse 2, probably the normal, average, born-again Christian. Verse 3, now you you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And the word clean at verse number 3 and the word prune at verse number 2, it's basically the same word in the New Testament, uh, but it's translated by different English words here. But verse number 3, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken unto you. The, the, the vine dresser cleanses and cleans the, the leaves and the grapes so that photosynthesis and pollination can occur. And oh, by the way, you are already clean as a new convert or as a normal, regular Christian because of the oral Bible that Jesus has spoken to you. Or in our case, we are clean because of the word of God that is inspired all 66 books in that Bible. Dropping down to verse number five. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do no thing. You've heard that verse your whole life. It is powerful. Apart from me, you can do no thing. Now, again, this idea of bearing more fruit, as we find, or verse number five, much fruit, that's where we want to go as a spiritually mature Christian. We don't want to be a new convert too long. And quite frankly, we don't want to be a normal, average, run-of-the-day Christian either. We want to be pruned more so we can get to the more fruit, much fruit level, not just regular fruit level. So whether you call that... Uh, the spiritually mature Christian, 
the Christ-like Christian, the conformed to the image of his son Christian, uh, the Christ-be-formed-in-you Christian, the anointed Christian. I don't care what you call it. I'm talking about progressing well, onwardly and upwardly in your Christian walk. And I don't care how many years you have been saved. I don't care how much you know about the Bible. There's always onwardness and upwardness in the plan of God in personal holiness and sanctification. That's just how it is. And then Jesus, again, startles them by saying this. Oh, by the way, (laughs) apart from me, you can do no thing. Don't get caught up on the much fruit because you're a mature Christian who's conformed to the image of his son. (laughs) You wouldn't even be here today if it were not for me. And I not only save you, I sanctify you. And Paul took this theme at Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, one of the most convicting verses of Paul's writings. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Christian, are you so foolish as to think that what has begun through the Holy Spirit, you're going to perfect through your flesh? Huh? Who would ever think that? That once the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, tapped me on the back and kicked me in the fanny, that all the rest going downhill is because of who I am and my personality and how much I know about the Bible and this, that, and the other thing. No! And you are foolish if you think that way. But you begin in the Spirit, you end in the Spirit, and you continue in the Spirit. Again, apart from me, you can do no thing. But if you turn that verse inside out, well, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hallelujah. Philippians 4.13. So powerful, powerful, is it not? But that's all the time I have for the expo- exposition. Now, secondly, I want to talk about some observations just so that we're clear and we're on the same page. I am the vine, you are the branches. We've heard that at verse number five. But I want you to think of that a little bit more slowly. Most people think Christ is like the trunk, and we are the, the, the branches um, or the limbs that come from that. And if that's all you're thinking, I would challenge you to think a little bit more deeply. And by that, I mean this. When Christ said, I am the vine, what he said is, I, I am the vine. I am the whole vine. I am the roots. I am the, the, the trunk or the branch. I am the, the limbs. And I'm the fruit. Like, I'm everything. I'm the vine. The whole vine is Jesus Christ. And you are part of me. You are in me. Okay, that's the picture I want you to see. So it's not that there's a trunk and there's a limb or a branch and there's some grapes growing. No, Christ is all, and you are part of him. You're not an adjunct from his stem, base, or root. No, he's everything. You are part of him. You are in Christ. There is a relationship there. There is a relationship there. And obviously, by way of another observation, to say the obvious, the root determines the fruit. And the root is Jesus Christ, deity, and life. 
And the grapes that we produce and the life that we have as born-again believers is because we are rooted and grounded in Christ. It's Christ who lives in us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Um, the idea that God works in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight of book of Hebrews at chapter 13 and verses 20 and 21. That's what we're talking about and how wonderful and glorious it is. So now it's time for the 16-question quiz. And in my sermon outline, we've gone from exposition to observation, now descriptions of fruit, descriptions of fruit. And we'll go through these quite quickly because they're very obvious, plus you've heard them most of your life. So I'm going to use what John said with carpos or fruit, and there's eight things about fruit bearing in John chapter 15 that we can sort of, you know, do a checklist. And then I'm going to go to Paul because Paul loved what Jesus said in the upper room. And there's eight things that Paul said about fruit bearing. So when we get done, we'll have a list of 16 and we'll just check. Are you a fruit bearing Christian who bears fruit? And it's easy to do. It's a 16 question quiz. But I'm going to go through them quickly and then go back and make it a quiz so it's a little bit more succinct. So, descriptions of fruit at John chapter 15. Fruit number one is supplication, that is prayer, verse 7 and verse 16. If you abide in me, that's great, and my word abides in you. That is powerful. Here it is, supplication. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But there is asking, there is asking. Uh, verse 16, verse 16 as it ends. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name he might give it to you. So part of bearing fruit is supplication or prayer, verse 7, verse 16. Are you asking, seeking, and knocking, as Jesus mentioned at Matthew chapter 7 at verse 7? The vine and the vine dresser would both love it if you would pray more than you probably are praying. Fruit number 2, fruit number 2, verse number 8. My Father is glorified by this equal sign that you bear much fruit. So here the key word is glorification. Glorification. Verse 8, it can't be any simpler. My Father is glorified by this, when you bear much fruit. You want to glorify God. That's John chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, where the word glorify occurs five times in just two verses. Do you want your life to magnify God? And make him look so much larger, so much better, so much merciful, so much more faithful. You can't add anything to deity, but you can sure make him powerful in your life. Are you a magnifying glass? Number three, number three, demonstration, demonstration. The end of verse number eight, the end of verse number eight. My Bible says, prove to be my disciples. Prove to be equals demonstrate. Are you going to demonstrate that you are my disciple? In other words, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And if so, how long would the jury deliberate? Four days? Five days? I want no deliberation. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, that person is a born-again believer. To demonstrate, to prove that you are my disciples. I'm in an honor society, 
and it's called Delta Epsilon Key, out of Romans chapter 16, verse 10, which says this, Greet Apelles, here it is, approved in Christ. That meant Apelles paid his spiritual dues. Long time, much service, much ministry. And Paul says at Romans 16.10, Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Here, proved to be my disciples. Last month, it was Tony Schuster's death. This month, Jack Allen's death. Those are two perfect examples of someone who demonstrates, or to have the Romans 16.10 passage, they were approved in Christ. But let's go on. Let's go on to the fourth word, which is the word affection. The word affection. And affection basically means love. Love. And we are to abide in Jesus' love, verses 9 and 10. We are to love one another, verses 12 and 17. There's just gobs and gobs of love in this opening paragraph of John chapter 15. It occurs many, many times, as well as the verb command or the noun commandments, verse 10, verse 12, verse 17. So there's a lot of love. There's a lot of commandments. And God says, you know what? I want you to love the brethren. I want you to understand my love for you in a Trinitarian sense. A key passage, again, verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. That's a pretty short verse. This I command, that you love one another. And you've memorized a whole Bible verse. But number five on our list of eight, number five on our list of eight, would be the word submission. Submission, also known by its synonym, obedience. I like submission a little bit better. But the idea is to keep or to do the commands of God. Note verse 10. If you keep my commandments, the end of verse 10, I kept my father's commandments. Verse 14, if you do what I command you, verse 17, this I command you. You get the idea that in submission, you're going to be an obedient Christian. And one of your spiritual fruits is obviously obedience. You are obeying the commander. Again, the language of the New Testament could say the commander Commands with commandments. We don't speak that way, but in the Greek language, they did. The commander commands with commandments. And I want you to obey. I want you to keep, do, and serve. Keep, do, and serve. Keep, do, and serve. Number six on our list is jubilation. Jubilation, uh, verse number 11 ends. Verse number 11 ends. That your joy may be full that my joy may be in you. Well, if Jesus' joy is in me and my joy can be made full, then I can be joyful. Are you a joyful Christian? Like verse number 11 says, I married a joy and my firstborn's middle name is joy. And I want you to know there's a whole bunch of joy in the hands house. Been that way since Joyce married me been that way since Tiffany arrived. It's a wonderful spiritual trait to have jubilation. It's not just joy, it's joyful, that is, being full of joy. Number seven is the word expiration. Number seven is the word expiration, and that means like an expiration date on a carton of milk, or when someone dies, they have expired. Expired is a verb. And the idea here is this, at verse number seven, verse number 13. 
Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life, lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 10, verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. Ah, and now the exact same Greek vocabulary is used here. Will you lay down your life for your friends? Most likely, you'll never have to do that. So God says, then part B is this. Since you probably won't have to literally die for them, why don't you literally live for them by fulfilling one another concepts from the New Testament? And then lastly, number eight, companions. The last word of verse number 13 is friends. Verse 14, you are my friends. Middle of verse 15, I have called you friends. Abraham was called a friend of God three times in the Bible. Do you have any friends? Do you have any Christian friends? That is a spiritual fruit, to have a Christian friend. But Paul says, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to use that word too. The stuff in the upper room was just given in germinal seed form, but I want to expand it throughout all my epistles. So Paul says, I have certain things about fruit. For example, my list of eight would be number one, the fruit of salvation, Romans chapter 1, verse 13, that I might have fruit among you as I did to other Gentiles. That is, Paul says, I'd like to lead someone to the Lord. I'd like to evangelize and get a new convert, and that is called spiritual fruit at Romans 1, 13. Secondly, how about the fruit of sanctification? You have as your fruit holiness. Romans chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ provides the base for your holy living. A third fruit, the fruit of contribution. Contribution, and I'm talking about cold, hard cash. Cold, hard cash. You were ministered to in material things, and I want to put my seal on their fruit. At Romans chapter 15, verses 27 and 28. Paul says, I don't want you to sow a seed of faith. I want you to open your wallet. There are poor saints in Jerusalem. They don't need your prayers. They need your money. And that is spiritual fruit of contribution. Number four, the fruit of maturation. In Galatians chapter 5, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, that's upwardly. Then it goes patience, kindness, and goodness. That is outwardly. And then internally, you have uh, faithfulness and self-control. So the fruit of the Spirit, those nine, the first three are for God, the middle three to other people, the last three for you, and again, you live your Christian life in three dimensions. Number five would be the fruit of illumination, the fruit of illumination out of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9. The fruit of light equals goodness and truth, goodness and truth. Number six, the fruit of devotion. This is the fruit of righteousness, which is used at Philippians 1.11. The fruit of righteousness at Hebrews 12.11. The fruit of righteousness at James 3.18. Seems like three different authors like the fruit of righteousness in those three passages, that fruit of devotion. Then the last two, the fruit of imputation. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek fruit, which will increase to your account. Paul says, I'm a limited, licensed um, partnership. 
And if you want to invest in me, then when I lead people to the Lord, I do all the work, but you get all the credit, the imputation of supporting missionaries. And then lastly, the fruit of appreciation, the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him, Hebrews 13, 15, the fruit of appreciation. Now quickly, as we end, here's the 16 um, question quiz on spiritual fruit bearing, and I'm going to be very, very quick. So take this quiz in your heart and in your mind and see if you're a John 15 kind of Christian, but are you no fruit, fruit, more fruit, or much fruit? Here we go, 16 in a row. Supplication, do your prayers get answered? Number two, glorification, do you magnify Christ in your body? Three, demonstration, if you are on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Number four, affection, do you love fellow Christians, or in the King James, do you love the brotherhood, which you should. Number five, submission. Do you keep, do, and obey God's commands? Number six, jubilation. Are you a joyful Christian? Number seven, expiration. Do you sacrifice in your love for another person? Number eight, companions. Do you have at least one good Christian friend? Number nine, salvation. No, going now to Paul's works. Number nine, salvation. Have you ever led anyone to the Lord? Number 10, sanctification. Are you holy, pious, and, a, and devout? Number 11, contribution. Do you put money into the offering plate of your local church? Number 12, maturation. Do you live your life with a focus that's upward, outward, and inward like the fruit of the Spirit? Number 13, illumination. Does your life shine forth the goodness and truth of God? Number 14, devotion. Are you a righteous person who is at peace with himself? Number 15, imputation. Do you support any foreign missionaries or missionary outreach organizations or programs? And then lastly, number 16, appreciation. Do you both praise and thank God? Those are the 16. They're right out of the Bible. They're right out of the Bible. So, hey, how'd you do? How'd you do? It's not like some med schools pass or fail. No. God goes A plus, A, A minus, B plus, B, B minus, C plus, C, C minus, D plus, D, D minus. That's how God grades. So what, what, what grade are you going to give yourself on this 16 question quiz. Hopefully, hopefully, you are a fruit-bearing Christian who bears fruit to God because you abide in Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Upper Room Discourse. Thank you that we can abide in you, a wonderful, wonderful spiritual relationship and position to be. Might we bear fruit that not only abides but remains as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.